Welcome to Forever a Golden Bear, brought to you by the Big C Society, the Letter Winner Society of Cal Athletics and its alumni network. Each week, we interview varsity letter winners from Cal who are excelling in their post-sports careers. Through their stories, we demystify how to ladder into various professional roles, examine what a day in the life in those roles looks like, and explore whether the athlete's mindset, disciplines, and sensibilities provides an edge in post-sports careers. This episode, and actually the first 13 episodes of Forever a Golden Bear, is brought to you by a regular donor to the Big C Society who shall remain nameless, who made his gift in honor of the thousands of walk-on athletes for the Golden Bears across all of its sports. Anonymous donor, you know who you are. Thank you. Thank you from all of us. Your generosity is the fuel for what we produce here. For anyone else who has an interest in supporting this podcast, please go to bigcsociety.org forward slash donate. Each $500 donation funds one episode of this show. Hello, everyone. This is Robert Paler, former Cal rugby player and now executive director of the Big C Society. Together with us today are Joe Roof, the president of the Big C Society, Caitlin Leverin-Smith, the co-liaison director for women's swimming and diving on the Big C Society Board of Directors, and our special guest today, Natalie Coughlin-Hall, formerly of Cal Women's Swimming and Diving, a 12-time Olympic medalist, and a 20-time World Championship medalist for USA Swimming, and now a vintner and co-founder of Guderian Wines. For the benefit of our listeners, Natalie, I'm going to start with a little background on you. Natalie is one of the most decorated female swimmers in American history and the most decorated Cal women swimming alumni. She was a standout athlete at Cal, winning 11 individual NCAA national championships and a 12th as a member of the Cal Relay team. She was named NCAA Swimmer of the Year three times, was a two-time recipient of the Honda Sports Award for Swimming and Diving, and was named the 2002 and 2003 Sports Illustrated College Female Athlete of the Year. After graduating from Cal in 2005, Natalie's success has earned her the Swimmer of the Year Award once, American Swimmer of the Year Award three times, and induction into the Cal Hall of Fame. She has won a total of 60 medals in major international competition, 25 gold, 22 silver, and 13 bronze, spanning the Olympics, the World Championships, the Pan Pacific Championships, and the Pan American Games. Now, I'm out of breath out of an introduction like that. (laughs) But before we get going, Caitlin, is there anything else you'd like to add to introduce Natalie to our audience? Yeah, absolutely. I it's like hard to wrap your head around. I think those stats just like saying them, it's it's truly amazing. So um, it's always fun and such an honor to be able to introduce um, Natalie. It's like I think especially fun for me because I, you know, growing up um, any swimmer, I think uh, in the early 2000s had that like maybe iconic Speedo poster and like (laughs) idolized Natalie and had her like plastered on my wall, um, you know, as someone I kind of aspired to be in my own Olympic dreams. And then it was like, you know, every little kid's dream come true to be able to come to Cal and train with my idol. And then I think maybe even better, just like become friends. And um, the number of things I learned from Natalie over the years, um, you know, she's just truly um, just someone of just 
like incredible strength, um, incredible determination. I just admire her um, in in so many ways. And and it's also been really fun because, um, you know, we go from like, she's like childhood idol, like poster on the wall to like friends at at Cal and roommates at the Olympics in 2012. um, And now both having kids, you know, and then we're not talking about something at all. In fact, I'm like, hey, my kid's doing this weird downward dog thing, but I know your kid did it too. So, (laughs) and and just kind of bonding over, um, completely new and life experiences. So, um, it's, it's really fun, um, to be able to, to introduce her and to hear more of her story today. Caitlin, that was such a nice introduction. I really, really appreciate it. And I was going to say, you have to mention that we were roomies in, in 2012. Uh, so I'm, <laughs> I'm glad that was part of the intro. <laughs> Awesome, Natalie. Well, we're so excited to have you here today. Welcome to the podcast. Um, As we start off our podcast here, I want to start by delving into um, your career as a swimmer. Before we go into the post-sports professional career, let's explore that remarkable career you've had as a swimmer. Can you tell us the story of how you got into swimming and then how you ended up at Cal? It was a pretty simple story how I got into swimming in the first place. Uh, My parents were just responsible parents, got me into swim lessons at a really young age. Um, I think I started at the YMCA and the mommy and me classes when I was eight months or nine months or something. And um, the first house that we lived in had a pool. And so water safety was really, really important. Um, And I always really enjoyed the swim lessons. And when I was uh, in first grade, so I think I was six, um, we moved from Vallejo to Benicia, so just the neighboring town um, here in the Bay Area. And um, to meet new kids in my new town, I joined the local swim team and had been doing it ever since. So I was um, just much better in the water than I was on land at that age. And I stuck with it. I ended up swimming competitively for almost 30 years, which is nuts. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Let's, let's keep going there too. Um, from your young swimming career to how you got to Cal, can you also describe that journey for you? Yeah. So it was, um, God, it, it, I mean, it seems like such a long, long journey. Um, so when I was six is when I started swimming. Um, and I, you know, looking back on it, I think I was better than I remember, but I, I was good and extremely competitive. Um, but I always thought I was kind of, you know, pardon the pun with swimming big fish in a little pond. Um, you know, I was in the North Bay of the Bay area and on smaller teams until, um, I was 13. And that's when I got on the big, uh, bigger team, um, in Concord, California and started really competing on the national level. Um, so, 13 was a big year for me. I went from just an age group summer who made the regional all-stars and was really good on, on the age group level, but I transitioned to junior nationals and nationals and actually finaled at my first nationals all when I was 13 years old. Um, and I still remember being, uh, on the pool deck, uh, for the final of the tuner freestyle, I was in lane one, it was in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And the announcer was, you know, they, they list your name and your stats. And my stat was, I was 13 years old <laughs> in lane one, 13 year old Natalie Coughlin. And, um, that would, you know, that's one of those memories that is seared in my brain. Um, so from 13, um, to 17 or so, you know, those, those are my high school years. Um, so 
So 13, it was 1996, um, uh, turning 14, I guess. Um, and, uh, yeah, so right when 13 or so that was when becoming an Olympian became a possibility before then it was always a dream. It was an aspirational goal, but, a six-year-old has no idea what it takes to go to the Olympics, uh, nor does a six-year-old have, have the ability to understand the process, um, like the actual process, but then the mental and physical and emotional process of it all. Um, but 13 was when I really sat down and started goal setting, like, this is how I'm going to get to the Olympics. And the goal ultimately was to get to the 2000 Olympic Games, which, uh, spoiler alert, I didn't make it, um, mm. but uh, that was the best thing that could have happened to me was missing that first Olympic team. Um, and after my, after the Olympic trials in 2000, when I, uh, got fourth, you need to get one or two first or second in an individual event. Um, I got fourth in the tuner I am, um, after missing that Olympic team was, I immediately went to Cal for my freshman year. And that was the best thing that happened to me because, um, I've said this before. I was, I don't think I would say arrogant, but extremely confident in my abilities and very strong willed. And uh, I think had I made the Olympic team prior to setting foot on campus at Cal, I would have been too stubborn to really accept um, Terry McKeever's style of coaching. Um, I needed to be knocked down off my pedestal and really start from start from scratch, I think, to absorb um, just her genius, you know, um, she is a fantastic coach, um, who, uh, was very different than the environment that I, that I came from. And, um, I needed, I needed something different and I needed to be, um, kind of at a really low level to accept it, I think. You know, when I was doing my research, I also read about this period before you got to Cal in your early swimming career at age six, 16. Um, you had already set three national high school records. You're pegged as a contender for the Sydney Olympics. And then you tore your labrum. And I bring this up because I'm curious, did this setback cause you to start thinking about life after sports? And was it a factor in that decision to go to Cal? Yes, that's very insightful. Yes. Um, yeah. So I was on this like rocket ship to making my goal of the Olympic team. I um, set a bunch of national high school records. I broke the American record like as a I think I was 16, maybe I was 15, 16. Um, either way, I was really young. I broke the American record in the hundred back. Um, and, uh, then I had this amazing U S open where I won five events. Uh, and that was about a year and a half, maybe, maybe a little bit longer, um, maybe like 20 months out of the Olympic games, Olympic trials. So I was like getting so, so close to my goal. And then, you know, like every swimmer gets shoulder issues, um, especially tendonitis. Like we see that as no big deal. Like if you don't have tendonitis, like you're really not trying. <laughs> um, but, uh, I, I mean, I joke about that, but you know, there's a lot of wear and tear, uh, uh on the body. It's like long-term stuff. So I had that, but, um, one day after a really tough practice, I, uh, woke up in the middle of the night and I could not lift my arm. And so I ended up tearing my labrum, which, um, it's, that's, uh, a very, like, that's 
all like the internal rotation, what, what you need for swimming. Um, and so it was frustrating because I was so close to my goal and the way that I hurt myself was working really hard and pushing through the pain. Like all the things that you're, you're taught as an athlete and a young athlete is like no pain, no gain. And, and I took that very literally and seriously. Um, and so, you know, mentally as a 16 year old, that was so tough. Like I was very, um, stressed out about that. And, um, I saw myself getting so close to my goals and then saw it also getting taken away from me. So that's when I really started thinking like, Hey, this could be taken away from me at any point in my life. So I better, um, get a good education and have a backup plan. Like, not that I ever thought I was going to be a professional athlete because that didn't exist really, um, in the late nineties, um, especially for swimming. Um, but I, I knew that I have to have things in my life outside of swimming that fulfill me mentally, emotionally, spiritually, um, so that my mental health was, was better. You know, um, I, I, I don't think those were the terms I thought about it at the time, but looking back, like that's, that was kind of the subconscious decision was to make sure that my life was well-rounded so that I was, um, more of a whole person than, than just an athlete. And that being said, I was always really competitive in, in academics, um, prior to this and prior to college. But, um, that's when, um, those goals kind of solidified in my, in my psyche. I also want to spend a little more time talking about like these setbacks and the forms of injuries, because I read that it wasn't the only time that you face a setback. It's something that almost every athlete is probably going to face over the course of their career. I read that you also suffered, suffered a shoulder injury just before the U.S. trials for the 2008 Olympics. And then rather than get surgery immediately and forgo competing in the Olympics, you went on to compete and you became the first American woman to win six medals at one Olympics and the first woman ever to win back to back Olympic gold in the 100 meter backstroke. And then you underwent shoulder surgery to repair your injury. And that decision, which obviously worked out, seems like it could have gone very wrong, except for one wizardry from your training room staff and two, a lot of grit from you. Can you take us back to that decision to compete, including what was in your mind at that time, the calculus of the risk and reward and so forth, and then deconstruct any secret differences in your approach to preparation and competition compared to your peers that allowed you to win 12 Olympic medals for Team USA? Yeah. So there wasn't a decision making process, honestly. Um, it was, it happened, I think a week before trials. Um, and I'm still not entirely sure what happened, but, um, I, I, I suspect it was in the weight room, um, doing, uh, a snatch. So in an above head, um, uh, weightlifting. I, I, I honestly don't know what happened, but I broke the head of my humerus. Um, and there was a chip uh, about the size of a quarter floating around in the shoulder capsule. And, um, to be honest, I didn't know it was broken. <laughs> I knew it hurt. I knew it was swollen. Um, and, but I also knew I was a week out of Olympic trials. So nothing was going to stop me from going to Olympic trials. And Caitlin could attest to this. When you're that close to the Olympic games, you're going to do whatever you need to do to, um, to get there. And 
had that been a, a lesser event, yeah, I would have considered the long-term ramifications of, you know, is this going to make me worse off in the long run? Um, you know, I would, I would have uh, gone through that risk analysis, but when it's Olympic games, you're going to go, even if your arm's going to fall off. Um, and uh, it, my arm wasn't going to fall off. I was, I, it, it was one of those things where it hurt like hell when I wasn't swimming, but when I was actually swimming and racing, I, I didn't even feel it. And I thought at the time it was just a really bad case of tendonitis. Um, I, I, I could tell it was swollen. I could tell it hurt. Um, but I, you know, I was, I broke a few world records earlier that year. I was on the path to having a great Olympic games. I wasn't going to not go. Um, and then I, you know, had this great Olympics, won six medals. Um, and I thought taking time off, it would, it would get better. You know, like I, I thought, Hey, you know, I'm going to take a long break and this tendonitis will take care of itself. And I think it was about six weeks after the Olympic games where I got to the point where I couldn't put on a jacket. I couldn't like wash under my arm when I showered. Like I couldn't like go like this movement. I was like, you know what? I think it might be more than 10. And then something might be seriously wrong. And um, that's when I saw a doctor and they're like, yeah, you need to get this surgically removed. And the way that she described it, it's like having um, a rock in your shoe. Um, so if you, you know, you just have to go and take the rock out and it'll be so much better than keep running on, you know, a giant pebble in your, in your shoe. And then once she was in there, she realized that the subscap was all torn up. Up, and so she ended up repairing that. Um, so it was a, it was a pretty big injury that I minimized at the time, um, probably to protect myself, you know, subconsciously to protect myself mentally. Um, and then also because it's the Olympic games and we're going to do whatever we need to do to be successful there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I also want to talk about your approach to winning 12 Olympic medals, which is just insane to a lay person like me, especially not, you know, the physical approach, but really that mental approach, that emotional approach, the sensibilities that you gained. Can you deconstruct any secret differences that you took in your approach, maybe to that of your peers to win 12 Olympic gold medals? And are there any elements from that approach to competing that you use in your work today? Yeah, it's whenever you have a really big goal. And I mean, I didn't set out to like, I didn't say, you know, my first Olympic Games, like I want to be I want to have 12 Olympic medals by the time, you know, that's not how it worked for me. For me, I at each Olympics, I went into events not assuming to medal, but knowing I had the ability and and the capability to, to medal. Um, so my first Olympic games, I won five and I knew I was capable of winning those individual, um, you know, the gold and the bronze and the hundred back and hundred free, and then the relays. And then when I got to Beijing, I didn't consider doing six events, honestly. Like I, I, <laughs> The 200 IM was an event that I didn't practice before. I did it um, tw 
twice before the Olympic trials, um, once at a, the Stanford uh, Grand Prix and then once at Janet Evans invite. And at that meet was when I broke the American record. And that's when a lot of people were like, you should probably consider doing this event at the Olympics. And I was like, hell no, because it overlaps with the hundred back and then the relays. I have five events and there's semifinals and finals. I'm not going to add to my schedule. And, um, then, you know, enough people got into my ear where I went into trials and I was like, you know what, I'll do that hundred back tuner I am and hundred free at Olympic trials. And then I'll make a decision from there. Ended up, um, make, making the, the team in all three events. And, um, then I remember at the Olympic training camp, sitting down with Terry McKeever. She was the assistant coach at, um, at Beijing and then the head coach, Mark Schubert, and essentially begging to get out of one of the events, <laughs> like saying, OK, I can't do all six. Take me off the four by two relay or let me drop the, you know, this event and they, they basically said, no, you're going to do all six. And I was like, okay, here we go. <laughs> and, um, at that Olympic games, again, I did, I went into it not saying I want to get six medals and be the first, uh, American to do that, um, or American female to do that. But, um, I knew that I could medal in every single one of those events. Um, and honestly, I, I really thought I could win gold in the IM and had I, at the time, had I practiced that event a little bit more, I probably could have, but that's the narcissist and the true competitor in me looking back, like, damn it, I got so close. I could, could have done so much better. Um, but yeah, like I chipped away at it. Um, so you just take one event at a time. When you have an eight day meet like that, you have, um, 15 sessions, um, because the last day there's no morning session. Um, so you just take each session at a time and you kind of map it out and, um, you get, get into the mindset by really visualizing, okay, session three is when I'm going to have the semifinal and then the final, and there'll be an hour and a half in between. So I'll get into warm up at 30 minutes before this event, then I'll warm down, then I'll get a massage and I'll get, you know, and you really map out the details of each session and visualize how that's going to work. So there, so that when inevitably there are some surprises that you'll be able to deal with them, but you you have a sense of how each session is going to go. Um, and when you apply that to life and in anything else, you get, you have this big goal. You just chip away at it a little bit at a time. And I've heard this, um, uh, metaphor, like you could eat a Buick if you just eat like little chunks at a time, it might take you 10 years to do it. And probably it's not very good for you, <laughs> but you could, you could do it, you know, like, so a task, like how would I eat that Buick? That's impossible. You could, you just have to eat a little bit at a time. Um, that's, you know, a crazy metaphor, but <laughs> it's something that you could visualize, like something that seems impossible. You just have to do little bits at a time and eventually you'll get there. You know, when I was doing my research, something that really struck out to me, too, is you're talking about focus and really being present and mindful when you're competing. And, you know, when somebody's going through something really difficult and maybe even something monotonous, when it's just you and the black line at the bottom of the pool, when it can think like, I'm going to think of my favorite song right now. I'm just going to like I'm going to zone out and just kind of go through that activity. You talked about, you know, like zoning in 
and really focusing in on every little movement. Can you talk about that too? Because it's something that really struck me when I was doing my research. Yeah. So, I mean, every swimmer can attest to this. I'm sure Caitlin can too, is especially in high school, you do anything to get out of your head when you're in swimming because you're in the water five hours a day and it's mentally exhausting on top of being physically exhausting, just not talking to other people, um, all the thoughts going in your head while you're going through this physical pain. It's, it's really tough. So a lot of times people... I think people make the mistake to distract themselves with a song or daydreaming or doing this or that. And somewhere along the way in college, I realized, Hey, if I, if I stay super like incredibly focused, not only do my practices get more efficient and I get more out of each practice, but it actually goes a lot faster. And, uh, when you're highly focused on a task, like time doesn't really seem to make sense. Um, but it, the main, the main thing that I took out of it was I just got so much better after every practice was when I was really thoughtful about what I was doing and why I was doing it. Um, so a lot of times, you know, a set would come, you know, a coach or Terry would give us a set and I would want to know why we're doing this. Set. And it's not because I was questioning, like, why are we doing this? This is stupid why are we doing this? Cause I really want to know, um, how this is going to get me closer to my goals. And so I could visualize that and internalize that and really take that and build upon each practice. Mm-hmm. Caitlin, I knew that now that you have a question along the Olympic experience, would you like to ask that? Yeah, absolutely. And before kind of jumping in there, I would just made me think of if our listeners or you guys have seen the movie soul, I just recently watched it. Like the like moonshine character talks about people who get in the zone and it's totally like, like I was like, Oh yes, I, we know what that thing is. So um, <laughs> if, if you uh, watch that movie, you might get a good laugh out of it. Co-produced um, by our own Rochelle Federico. Oh, yeah. really? Amazing. Even better. <laughs> Um, so, um, I, as I mentioned, uh, in the intro, we got to be roommates at the 2012 games, which was super fun. And I know I have like so many memories from the London games that stand out from like small things of like going to and from the coffee cart together or, um, kind of like bigger moments in my mind, like the first time kind of seeing the competition pool and realizing and like totally getting chills and realizing like I'm at the Olympic games, but I'm curious if you can just share with us, like what, like, what is it really like? Like I, I, you know, I have, I have these like very vivid experiences and moments in my mind, but just to like bring to life to our listeners, like, what is it like to be at the Olympics and, and what are some of those like really, you know, standout memories from your experiences? Yeah. I mean, it, the, the first Olympic games, Athens for me was something that I had dreamt about since I was six years old. Um, so it, I was 21, I turned 22 during the Olympics. Um, and I remember being overwhelmed by it all, just kind of feeling like I was in this haze. Like, I don't know, Caitlin, if you experienced the same thing, but I was just kind of in this mental haze the whole time. Like, holy crap, I'm actually here. Like, what is going on? And the, the pressure of the Olympics and just it's so big. It's it's similar to world championships, but it's not. Um, I, I just remember 
being in this haze. And that's the only way I could describe it. Um, and, and that was actually much smaller Olympic games, which is probably nice, uh, for, for me as a newbie. Um, there were 6,500 people in the stands at Athens versus Beijing. There's 18,000. <laughs> um, and I think it was similar in London. Uh, so, uh, yeah, you're just overwhelmed, but it's, it's so big. It's like a city in of, it, of itself. The village is a village. And one of the coolest things that I always tell people is the people watching. Um, my favorite game to play at the Olympics is guess the athlete. Um, and you could, you could see like how people were chosen for their sport and how their sport has shaped their bodies. Um, like the crew athletes stand out, the runners stand out, the rhythmic gymnastics stand out, like uh, the basketball player, like you could, you could pick out, like, I guess I, I would bet that person's rugby or I would get that, guess that person's um, a swimmer, uh, you know, swimmers are easy to tell, but um, that was one of my favorite things. And you could do that in the cafeteria. Um, 10,000 athletes come through the cafeteria uh, daily. Um, and it's really cool people watching from people around the world, uh, with different backgrounds. And it's, it's, it's so cool. And fortunately swimming has always been that first week of the Olympic games. And so swimmers are really, really lucky in that they get to go to the Olympics, compete, and then they get to be spectators. And after, after the fact and go to other events and really enjoy the Olympics as a fan after, um, all the hard work is done. So swimmers are very, very fortunate. This time around in Tokyo, who knows what's going to happen? I don't think athletes are going to be able to attend other athletic events, unfortunately, um, which is sad. But hopefully, you know, the Olympics continue um, at least hopefully people at least get to compete um, in Tokyo. Yeah, I, I do hope so, too. I think I remember playing that guess the athlete game. I can't remember if it was with you or maybe another teammate, but. We were guessing the athlete and like wanted to confirm. And so we asked someone if they if they were a runner and they were a race walker. And that's when I realized <laughs> that race walking is the Olympic term and speed walking is what old ladies do at the park. And I remember like <laughs> kind of like schooled in that at the Olympic Village, you know, <laughs> by these like probably super elite race walkers. So same um, with table I'm, tennis. I'm sure you taught me that. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, it's not ping pong. Not ping it pong. is table tennis. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, so kind of, I guess, on the like other side, um, I'm I'm sure you've heard the, the metaphor of, of like we climb up the mountain and we climb back down. And um, and I'm just curious, like if you can kind of talk through the experience of like, what is it like to come down the mountain and what is it like to have your identity that was, you know, from age six or 13, just like so wrapped up in being a swimmer and achieving these goals and shifting that into maybe something real life and, and civilian like and motherhood and these, you know, kind of other things like what's it like to kind of come back uh, down the mountain on the other side of the things. There, oh my gosh, there's so much to unpack with that. Um, I remember making my first like national, like the, the top level national team in 1999, and that was Pan Pacifics. And I remember talking to a lot of the veterans on the team and they would talk about post-Olympic depression, post-Olympic depression. Oh, you get really depressed after the Olympic games. And I always remember 
not understanding what that meant. And, and then, you know, I didn't make my first Olympic team to 2004. And so, uh, you again, you hear about this and you hear about veterans saying, no, just be ready uh, to come down off of those super, super high highs and being very, very driven and having someone tell you exactly how to get to your goals to normal life. Um, so I was kind of prepped for that. Fortunately, um, I don't think I ever experienced that post Olympic depression of having such a distinct purpose and then having it gone. Um, and, uh, and, and it's weird with a lot of people, it doesn't matter if they're crazy successful or not successful at the Olympic games, they still kind of slide into that. And so I think being prepped mentally to kind of combat that helped. And then also, um, Robert, what you were saying earlier of, you know, kind of having a rounded, well-rounded life kind of helped me get out of that. Um, but all that being said, after the 2016 uh, Olympic trials, I, did, I didn't make the. I was training to make Rio and I, I missed the team. I had an awful, awful 2016 year. Um, I went from training, you know, six days a week being around 40 people a day, um, you know, around 40 people a day. My, my training group was about a dozen or so people laughing all the time, working so hard for this common goal. Um, just having that camaraderie with your teammates and your, and your coaches and, um, to just being at home. And I think that's something that everyone could relate to with the pandemic right now. Um, you know, a lot of people went from these large office settings where you have your social group and then is at home in their office by themselves, not talking to anybody. Um, and so that, that could be really difficult. So after 2016, what I did right away was I wrote my cookbook and I was here in the, in my office, which is where I am now writing all day and then going downstairs to the kitchen, testing recipes, going to the grocery store and really not interacting with anybody. Like I had my dogs and I would have these full conversations with my dogs because I was so starved for human attention. And I think that's something that everyone could relate to right now. Um, so, so that part of it was, was difficult. And also just, it's so clear what you need to do when you're an athlete. Um, you work hard, you keep your head down. Um, you have a coach that kind of lays out the plan for you. You have your meets along the way. It's, it fits onto a calendar, you know, it's something that it's pretty easy. And then you get into real life and you're like, what the hell am I doing? I have no idea. You know, you have to set these goals and you have to set these stepping stones with, with no real outside input. Um, so it's, it's tough. It's really tough. And, but fortunately I think I, I, I think I was fortunate in that I did it at a later stage of life and I was much more prepared for it um, than if I was 23 uh, or, you know, when a lot of people tend to retire is in their early 20s. I was in my early 30s. So I had a little bit more life under my belt um, and I was more mentally prepared for it. I really appreciate that response. It's so poignant. And that kind of transition that, you know, climbing down the mountain, like you said, Caitlin, is something that 
every athlete has to go through eventually, you know, whether that's climbing down the mountain of an Olympic experience or climbing down the mountain of finishing your senior year of competing at Cal, everybody has to hang up those metaphorical cleats or goggles one day. And, um, and everybody has to deal with that transition of identity and schedule and working in a team environment versus, you know, doing things more on your own, like you spoke about. So I really appreciate that. But now I'd like to shift the conversation to your post sports career, specifically as co-founder of Guderian Wines. Can you tell us the story of how you got started in the wine industry after retiring from professional athletics? Yes. So I started Guderian Wines in 2017 with my business partner and winemaker and friend, Shana Harding. Um, So it's a two-person company and um, yeah, Joe and Caitlin have both been up and and visited us and um, it's it's really, really fun. Like I, it's something that I never once considered doing. I loved wine. I grew up just outside of Napa Valley. My parents, uh, were always into wine as, uh, when I was younger and still are. And I remember just being exposed to going to the vineyards, going wine tasting. I personally wasn't wine tasting as a child. I would just run around in the vineyards when, when they would, uh, you know, taste. And, uh, that was more acceptable in the early nineties, uh, than it is now. Um, but yeah, I was always intrigued by it. So when I became of drinking age, I, um, would go up to Napa and I just wanted to learn about this, this thing that is, um, that so many people love and that I wanted to learn about the concept of terroir and, and learn about the different varietals and the history of wine. Like it was really interesting to me and it was just a passion, um, outside of swimming and it was, and people think like, Oh, how did you fit that into training? You know, I had a glass of wine with dinner. I didn't, didn't have a bottle of wine with dinner, <laughs> so there, it, it can fit into, uh, it, it can fit into training for the Olympics, uh, believe it or not. But, um, my friend and partner, Shana, uh, when she moved out to California, she, uh, she's from the, from Florida, but she was actually moving from New York and she married, uh, one of my husband's teammates from Santa Barbara. Um, and so I knew her, you know, via my husband and she got into the wine industry and just very quickly worked her way up. Um, she went from seller rat to, um, she was the enologist and then she was the associate winemaker. Now she's the winemaker at Honeycutt and she's just incredibly, incredibly talented. And I was always very complimentary of how much I admired how she started this and uh, became so successful so quickly, so seemingly quickly. And I would just pick her brain and um, just say like, oh my God, that is so cool. I wish I could do that. And uh, when my husband and I were looking for houses to purchase um, in the late, in 2006, 2007, um, one of the houses we considered actually had vines. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, what if we buy this house and then I just kill all these vines? And I remember telling Sheena like, hey, you could take care of, take care of it and we can make wine together. Um and I guess that was enough to plant the seed in her head that we could, you know, maybe do something down the road. And when she, she just sent me a text one day, Hey, 
I'm ready to make a wine. And would you consider being my partner? And I said, yes, immediately. And then I was like, you didn't mean to text this Natalie, right? <laughs> we've all, we've all texted the wrong Caitlin or the wrong Robert in our phone before. Um, and totally. I was like, you can't take it back. <laughs> um, and, and so I, you know, I went into this industry and into this business completely blind and that's where I, and I've, I've said this before, I think that's where the confidence of being a successful athlete and a successful student athlete at Cal really comes into play is it gives you, it gives you a sense of confidence that you could figure it out as you go. And that's one of, that was one of the mottos that, um, Terry would always tell us, figure it out. And, you know, you don't really want to hear it at the time when, when, when you're being told, figure it out. Um, but it is, it is a really important lesson. You, you can, you can figure it out as you go. You're a smart, capable person who is industrious and I'm scrappy. I am a bit of a hustler. So it, I could, I could figure this industry out as we go. And, um, yeah, it's been it's been difficult, especially with the wildfires, um, which we've had every year, uh, you know, something that we can't control at this point. Um, but and, and just learning the business has been interesting. Learning the science of winemaking has been fascinating, like that part of it. I absolutely love. Um, and then you make this wonderful product. And like I have like this is our latest right here. This is our 2019 Henry Ranch Cabernet. Um, we bottled this last week, which is really exciting. This is was in the barrel almost two years. So this has been in the making for a really long time. Um, yeah, it's a practice and patience. Uh, wine is, is not something that happens quickly. And, um, there are factors that you could control, like this, the science of the winemaking and, and, uh, the work that you put into it and, um, how you do it. But then, you know, there's climate and there's the terroir and there's wildfires and there's, you know, just so many things out of your control and you just have to accept it and uh, work around it. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a fun industry. Natalie, that was an excellent uh, description of all the wonderful atmospherics and, <laughs> and so forth that make wine, you know, so sexy and, and attractive. And you won't be surprised to know um, for all the reasons you also previously mentioned that our audience of Cal student athletes actually turns out quite a lot of uh, entrepreneurs, uh, self-motivated, you know, people go get them, figure it out, you know, a little at a time. And some of them actually may be considering launching a wine label. So I, I'm just interested, could, uh, based on what you've now learned, could you describe the collection of responsibilities in a wine business that are split between the the owner uh, and the winemaker, as it were, or the uh, as you and Shana sort of split all there is to do in an early stage business. Yeah. So fortunately, so Shana is the the winemaker, and she's also the winemaker at Honeycut, which is uh, a custom crush facility uh, located in St. Helena. So what that means is that small wineries like Gadarian use Honeycut's facilities 
to produce their wine, to produce and store their wine when it's in barrel. Um, so that's how you kind of get through not having the, the capital to just build a production facility. Like that's, that's insane. Um, and we lease our, our, um, we have leases on our vineyards, so we don't own the, the vineyards themselves yet. Um, hopefully we will <laughs> at some point. Um, so you have these relationships with the growers and then you have the relationship with the um, production facility. Uh, fortunately, we have a, a foot in the door with Shana being in charge of the production facility. Um, and so she gets to really baby our wines, which is really great um, every single day. Otherwise, if you're a different winery, who's going to go to Honeycut, you either visit the winery yourself or give directives to Shana and her staff of what to do with your wine. Um, and so that's kind of how that, uh, model works. There's a lot that goes into, um, the TTB. So the tax and trade bureau of, you know, what states you could ship to, what states you can't ship to, um, what could go on to your label is a big thing. You have to go through this whole process through COLA. Uh, if, forgive me, I forget what that stands for. Um, but uh, of what you could put on your label, you can't put anything you want on your label. Like I, um, so Gadarian means uh, in old English, it means to gather or bring together. And so initially our tagline was going to be drink together um, because, you know, you want to drink together around um, a, a table with a glass of wine and some food. Like that's, that's how most wine is consumed is with food and friends and that didn't get approved. So it says made with love by Nat and Shana instead. And that was approved. So there, there are all these like little things that you don't think, um, would go into the business. And then, and then it's the, the salesmanship of it all, um, selling to restaurants and shops and really making relationships with either the sommelier or their wine director or just the bartender. Um, it, it really is different, um, uh, with, with each place, uh, getting into grocery stores and, um, we finally just got a distributor in Southern California, which is really exciting because we're direct to consumer, um, probably 95%, uh, despite, well, I mean, with the pandemic, everything's direct to consumer now. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's a lot that goes into the, the business. Unfortunately, Shana had done it for so long for other people that she really knew exactly what she was doing and kind of held my hand through the bureaucracy. And then my side of things is getting the word out. Um, I, I do the social channel. So I do the Instagram, I, um, do the Pinterest ads. Um, I do, uh, so so the graphic design part is not something I'm trained in, but I have learned along the way uh, how to use Photoshop. I'm getting a lot better at it, but it's still incredibly frustrating sometimes because it, it's not an intuitive program. You really need to know what you're doing. Um, but yeah, we split the responsibilities down, hopefully down the middle um, and yeah, figure it out as we go. Yeah, that's so. Let me let me recap. There's a whole bunch of interesting stuff in there for the you know for the aspiring wine entrepreneur in our audience. But so you mentioned some you know prohibition era restrictions that, for example, limit what you can put on your wine label. I know they also limit the way 
you can market to consumers. There was this uh, theory, I guess, that if winemakers were directly marketing to consumers, that somehow that would be dangerous for consumers. And so, you know, distributors then became, you know, an elemental and um, I think now a statutory requirement, right, for uh, selling in, in, in many states to restaurants and to retailers. You can't just sell directly. Somehow that was supposed to be, is my understanding anyway, more safe for consumers. Uh, but uh, in any case, um, there's this old and there's this old adage. It used to be that you mentioned uh, that you're using third party crush pad, third party caves. Uh, you're you're in a negotiant business, which is means that you're you're buying grapes from farmers. Like all of these things, you know, reduce the the overhead, reduce the the hurdles to actually start a wine label. Is that a is that a fair kind of summary? Of what you yes, just said? Yes, 100%, 100%. And then actually another another part of it is choosing, uh, being very thoughtful in your growth. Um, so we started, gosh, our first year, I think we made maybe two, 250 cases, maybe 200 cases total. Um, and last year, well, last year was we had we lost a lot from the fires, but um, we were about 550 cases, I think, before. Um, so in 2019. Um, so being thoughtful. So having like that 10 year plan of, hey, in 10 years, we want to be around 3000 cases or so. Um, so having that um, that behind us, uh, we have our flagship wines. So our, our two flagships, what we started our company on um, are Chenin Blanc and Pinot Noir. So those are, are you know, the bread and butter um, we have that we've based our um our portfolio around, and then we fill in uh, the varietals with ones that we love uh, personally. Um, so, and not just what's trendy or what um, you know. We 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 very thoughtfully um, choose our wines and stuff that we personally like to drink, and um, things that we know the consumer will enjoy. So we have a hundred percent petite Syrah that is, um, single vineyard. It's amazing. Uh, and that's not something that you generally see, uh, that's, you know, that's sold out right now. Shana and I were actually, we weren't fighting over the last four bottles, but, um, <laughs> we're de- definitely jockeying for who gets those. Um, but we are completely sold out of that one. Um, so being very thoughtful and not just going with, the trend, um, because that's, that's not what we're in this for. We're in this to make wine that we love and, um, stuff that we could share with our friends and, uh, customers. So I, and I also want to explore just a little bit more. You mentioned a couple of terms, uh, in your description, you, you mentioned that you just recently got a distributor and you mm-hmm. mentioned the term direct to consumer. These are also, these are both really important for anybody who's ideas to understand when you're, when you're launching a wine business. So, um, the the three ways you can get to market in the first place are, you know, through a retail shop, through a restaurant or selling directly to a user. And the first two require, require a distributor and it is not easy to get distribution. Mm -hmm. So how did you do it? And then when you get on, when you're on the subject of direct to consumer in this answer, talk about how do you attract a direct, like a a user to, to actually experience your wine. How do you find them? How do you attract them? How do you retain them? 
That's a very good question. Um, so we initially got our customers through friends, family, word of mouth. Um, just we started an email list in the beginning, just anyone that we thought would like wine and sent sent an email like, hey, we're starting this brand. If you want to know more, sign up for our um, what we call our insider list. And it's free. You just get information of releases and just interesting news. And we promise not to spam you. <laughs> uh, we promise not to uh, send a bunch of emails because who likes that? No one likes that. We get too many emails as it is. So we just sent you send you the pertinent information and follow us on our social channels. So we have our Instagram, our Facebook, and then our Twitter, but we don't really use Twitter. Um, and Shana started TikTok, but I don't, I don't know TikTok yet. <laughs> um, but so, so that's kind of how we initially made the relationships. And then, um, the word of mouth thing is really great with wine. Um, we got our, probably our best restaurant account through a friend of a friend who tasted our wine, loved it, brought it to a restaurant. And then we're in the, this restaurant group in, in Sacramento. So, um, we're in golden bear, actually golden bear and crew and, um, uh, uh, hook and ladder in, in Sacramento. Um, and they just tasted it at a party and loved our Chenin Blanc and wanted to include it on their wine list, uh, which was really great. And, um, I forget the second part of your question. This is, I like tend to meander with my, my answers. <laughs> well, so the part, the other part was like, how do you get distribution? How did you guys manage yes. that? Yeah. Again, again, it was word of mouth. So, uh, we were contacted by this guy who um, runs the Napa Valley Wine Project, and he just he has this really ambitious, ambitious goal of visiting X amount of wineries and in. And he writes it on his blog, so Napa Valley Wine Project. Um, and he loved our wine, loved our story of just two women, two scrappy women in St. Helena um, making this what he considers great wine, thankfully. And he introduced us to a distributor in, in Southern California. And that's how it started. And we, we just got this distributor like in the past month. So that's really exciting. Um, otherwise, and then you end up, you end up paying, you know, a commission to, to that person and you get the sales. And, um, when you sell to a restaurant or to a retail store, you sell at 50% of cost. So then that restaurant or, or, uh, retail store can mark it up to the cost of retail and that's how they make their profit. So, um, you do have to account for that, that you are selling at a much lower price point, uh, but you're getting it out to the world and hopefully spreading, spreading the love and spreading, um, spreading your wines to more people than you could reach personally. So there is that consideration of, you know, direct to the consumer is more profitable for our small business, but we also want to reach more people, not necessarily the masses. We're not, um, you know, we're not Mondavi. We don't produce like thousands and thousands and thousands of cases. We produce 500 cases a year. <laughs> Yeah, really well said. Uh, I just also wanted to clarify when you said 50% of cost, what you really meant was 50% of retail is what retail, you Retail, I'm sorry. 50% of retail. Sorry. To, yeah, yes. Sell. So there's margin left for the, for the retailers and so forth. Um, yes. And before we, I've got one last question on the entrepreneur thread, uh, but before we move on, I just wanted to thank you again for 
uh, sponsoring the wine at the 2019 Hall of Fame induction banquet. We hope you'll come back this year in 2021 with that wonderful Cabernet. Um, and then the last thing I want to talk about was sort of like the sort of unexpected risks of entrepreneurship. Uh, you mentioned, I mean, earlier in this conversation, you you know, the, the unexpected in Olympic training was injuries. And also in, even in high school was these injuries that came up at really inopportune moments. You also mentioned in this business that the fires were, were really unexpected risks of entrepreneurship that are just a part of your business. And this is metaphorically, this is a really, you know, consistent theme in, in entrepreneurship. Everybody, it's not always exactly fires per se, but, um, you know, can, can you talk about what was in your mind when the fires began and like, how did you react? Uh, how did you yeah. just make it through that? And what, what happened? It, I mean, it was really tough. 2020 is, is the fire that hit us the closest and the hardest. Um, so there's been a wildfire, like I said, every year that we've had our wine and we've been threatened by fires before, but never actually affected. Um, and in 2020, there was that that dry lightning storm. So anyone who's from California or knows California, we do not get lightning ever <laughs> in the summer. Like that just doesn't happen. And so there was this freak light storm in in August that sent us, uh, that started a bunch of fires and all these fires grew into these two giant fires and really, um, destroyed a lot of the Valley. Um, so it was very scary in that it was so close to our production facility and so close to our vineyards. Um, and I mean, let's not forget all the people that were lost in this and all the houses, like, you know, I'm not going to minimize that, but me directly. Um, it, it was very close to our, um, vineyards and our production facility. Uh, I, and just to be clear, I don't own the production facility. Sometimes people get a little confused by that. Um, it, it's honeycut, right? just, they, uh, yes, you know, honey, yes, honeycut, honeycut. Arkenstone, there's, yeah. there's a number of these bigger brands that, that allow others. Yes smaller brands to use their facilities. Yes. When, sometimes when people visit, they're like, wow, you have all this. I'm like, no, I don't own this. <laughs> so I, I want to be clear with that. Um, so anyway, um, and especially with our Shannon Blanc, it is at least 50 years old, if not 80 years old. Um, we, our records only go back to 50 years. So it's this amazing old vine Shannon that if it burns down, it's gone forever. And we're not going to have anything like that in Napa for the next 50 years. Um, uh, so because there's so little Shannon in, in Napa Valley, at, at, when we started, there was like seven acres recently. Um, a couple people planted some more, but the point is old vine Shannon, it's going to be gone forever. If the fires destroy it, fortunately we were spared um, on our vineyards themselves, physically burning down the smoke, um, ruined our red wines. And for people who don't know much about the production of wine, um, you know, you have the, the must. So the grapes and the skins all sit together and ferment together. Um, and so when you have smoke damage, it just soaks into those skins. And so we lost all of our red for 2020 because of that. And we produced our whites and our rosé with like not even a press. We 
we just gravity is what pressed those wines. So as not to extract any, um, any smoke from those. Um, and so fortunately our vineyards didn't burn down. And then, uh, unfortunately Honeycutt was pretty severely affected. Um, so Shana, bless her heart. She was working through the fires. Like there were literal fires around her. And there were points where all the roads to Honeycutt were, were shut down and she was trying to get in. And I was, I was like, Shana, like, I appreciate that you're trying to take care of our wine and other people's wine, but like, don't get killed in this process. This is insane. And, um, she worked through it and, uh, yeah, Honeycutt ended up losing one of their buildings that the little, as you drive up, there was this house in front, um, that's completely burned to the ground. The crush pad was destroyed. Um, some of the metal signs like melted, uh, it, it got really hot. And if you look around, uh, Honeycutt itself, the forest that surrounds it is just charcoal twigs. Uh, it's pretty crazy. Like I didn't know that the mountains behind Honeycutt were like rocky mountains. I always, always saw all these trees, all these beautiful, um, redwoods and those are gone. Um, so it, Honeycutt got hit pretty hard, but it could have been a lot worse. Like Meadowood was just down the road and their restaurant burned to the ground. Like there are, are wineries that are just gone. Um, so, you know, we were affected, but not as badly as it could have been. Yeah, good good thing for caves. Glad you know the yeah. wine was inside the cave and and safe. And just one quick little fun fact: Do you happen to know what the uh, the largest production of Chenin Blanc is in the world, or where it is? I should say, Clarksburg, right? Well, it, or it's, is it? Or is it? It's actually or, South, well, Clarksburg in 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 U.S. It's actually in South Africa, uh, which Chenin Blanc was also the base for brandy. So when the Dutch East Indies Company was sending ships around the Horn of Africa, they decided that they needed to plant a lot of Chenin Blanc because they needed refills on brandy. <laughs> so anyway, it's interesting. Yeah. We, yeah, they have, I think they do a lot of sparkling in, in South Africa, uh, of Chenin. Um, yeah, the Napa Valley for people that don't know it, it used to be all Chenin Blanc. Um, and, and then historically, and then they ripped it out and replaced it with Cabernet because Cabernet is, is King in Napa Valley. It, it, it you could sell it for a lot more. And, um, so there's so little of it left in Napa, but there's a lot of history with Chenin and it can be a really interesting, lovely, aromatic white, um, if you know what you're doing with it. Yeah. Well, I want to continue this entrepreneurial discussion here because I've read about your passion with food and cooking, and this interest should come as a surprise to none of our listeners since wine paired with food as a final ingredient to dishes is well covered in mainstream cooking shows and pretty much everywhere, actually. Speaking of which, you were a judge on Iron Chef America and competed in Food Network's Chopped. And I even read that you raise chickens and you have a vegetable garden in your backyard, which implies a chef's interest in fresh ingredients. And in 2019, you published your cookbook called Cook to Thrive. Now, let's focus on this. Can you describe for us the genesis and thesis of your cookbook, which seems like it attempts to blend an athlete's nutrition with haute cuisine and how the whole process of writing and publishing your book unfolded that um the process of the cookbook was so interesting it's a much longer process than i ever anticipated it was about two and a half years which seems nuts to me um so in 2016 
I, well, let me back up. I always had this idea. Like I wanted to do a cookbook and a lot of, you know, my social Twitter or Instagram was all about food. Like that's, if I'm not swimming, it's always about food. I love food. I live to eat. And, um, people would, would always say like, when are you going to do a cookbook? And it's something that I never really considered doing. And then I started thinking about it. And my idea was, to share my stories of training, travel, and competition through a cookbook. So using the cookbook as a way to share some of my stories. And, um, you know, when you think of food and memories, uh, or, or when you think of a lot of times when you travel somewhere, you think about the meals that you had or the little snacks along the way. And when you eat something, it immediately brings you back to that time in your life. And, um, so food and the aromas of the food really tie, tie in with memories. And so that was kind of the idea of telling these stories about my swimming through food. And, uh, after the 2016 quadrennium, um, that's how swimmers think <laughs> in quads. Um, I thought about, you know, that next step, I want to write a cookbook. So it, in December of 2016, I met with a bunch of publishers in New York and, um, Clarkson Potter is, is my publisher and they were the ones that got it. Um, everyone else, they're like, okay, so you want to do healthy recipes, right? Like it's all going to be healthy, 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 whatever, whatever healthy means, you know, it, it, that's such a charged definition that even dietitians can't really define a lot of times. Um, it's something that's a moving target, it seems like, but a lot of publishers wanted me to do stuff that could help you lose weight and that could help you do this. And, 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 and that's, that's not the point. <laughs> the point is a lifestyle and Clarkson Potter got it because I wanted to share, you know, whatever healthy recipes mean that the recipes that I was eating when training for the Olympic games or competing at Olympics or world championships, um, and then the family recipes and just the recipes that I enjoy making. And so the stuff that I would eat actually eat throughout the entire, my entire year, not just when I want to, you know, look good or right when I'm competing, like it's the point is, is you have this whole life where you have to fuel yourself throughout the day. And, um, yeah, you, you want to enjoy what you're eating, whether, it, you know, it's breakfast, lunch or dinner. You're, you don't want to just mindlessly put it in your mouth and then move on like you want to enjoy it. And so that was kind of the whole point of the book. You know, I'm actually working on writing a book right now, too. Not not a cookbook, but a book. And I think it's something that our student athlete listeners and um, recent alumni or even older alumni might be interested in doing. So I'm curious, do you have any insider tips that you can share to pitching books to publishers, marketing it? Is there anything that surprised you about this whole process? I know you talked about the length yeah. of publishing a book, but you know, like, like building an email list, like, did you have to put a lot of effort into that? And, you know, how did you craft your book proposal to these publishers? And, you know, how did you develop your marketing when you eventually launched this book? Can you describe that process for us? <laughs> Yeah. So let's back up the, the whole, the, let me give you the timeline of writing a cookbook. It's crazy. So I sold it in 2016 in December of 2016. And then the manuscript itself was due, um, in September of 2017. And then we did photography by like 
the spring of 2018 and then turned in the finished manuscript by the summer of the summer, early fall of 2018. And then it was published in 2019. Like that is such a long timeline that it's kind of nuts. Um, and, there, and the reason is cookbooks, um, you either release in the spring or the fall and generally new authors you want to release in the spring. Um, the fall is when they reserve for, you know, the Ina Gardens and the Martha Stewart's and the people who are really established um, cookbook authors. Um, so the newbies are in September. So you kind of have to fit into that timeline somewhere. And so when you meet that, that initial step of meeting with publishers, you have to have your book proposal. And I remember talking to my book agent who I had, um, prior to all this, and he was telling me, you need to write a book proposal. Okay. What is that? I don't know what that is. I have this idea in my head, but nothing's written on paper. Um, and, uh, generally the book proposal is like the first, uh, few chapters of your book to kind of lay out the, the overall, overall tone and direction, uh, where you're going. And that didn't make any sense to me uh, because I'm not writing a, a novel. I'm writing a cookbook. So, so what do you do? And so for me, it was writing the introduction, sharing a bunch of recipes um, and stories. And that's what I, that's what I um, sold to the publishers and selling yourself is something that is, challenging when you're in a room with, uh, with people. Um, my sports agent always said, imagine you just had a glass of wine. So <laughs> you just, you know, you take away those like initial in inhibitions, just pretend like you had a glass of wine and you're, you are that gregarious person. Like I'm not, I am a very social, um, introvert, if that makes sense. So I'm someone who's capable of, of speaking with people and interacting, but at heart, I'm an introvert. <laughs> um, when you are selling yourself, you kind of have to just act as if and pretend that you're not this introverted person and pretend that, you know, you're the life of the party. And somehow you end up being a little bit more social than you would be otherwise, if that makes any sense. Anderson Cooper talked about that on live television not that long ago about his own, you know, sort of natural instincts, like in what he has to do to be a TV anchor. Yeah. It's, it's this interesting thing where, um, you know, in life, like I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a shut in or by any, any sense of the word, but I am much more introverted. And I think that sometimes that doesn't come across in interviews such as this, because I mean, you are three easy you know, three people that are easy to talk to, but, um, and then you're asking me questions about myself. Like anyone could talk about themselves. Right. <laughs> but, um, yeah, you, you kind of have to, you kind of have to push through that. And the, the acting as if really works in so many different facets of life. Um, just, just pretend you're that successful person that you're trying to be. And somehow you will become that person. I also have a follow up question on this because I know you mentioned you have a sports agent, but did you also hire a literary agent? Can you talk about if that's even important to getting a publisher's attention? I yes. Um, so I have a book agent um, and yeah, I, I don't think I would have sold the book otherwise. So um, I I found one through my agency, through my sports agency. So um, my sports agent is with Octagon which is a large sports agency. So they have, you know, all these different resources and that's how I found my book agent. 
Yeah, well, excellent. I know I'm definitely using these notes and this guidance um, in my process. But on that note, I want to shift to this intangible benefits, the thousands of hours that you invested in the pool, training, swimming, competing. We talked a little bit about it earlier and you talked about chipping away at large goals, visualizing um, your schedule, what you're about to do and focusing in when going gets tough, but our audience is very interested whether the sensibilities developed as an athlete are transferable to post-sports careers. So for that, I'm going to turn this over to Caitlin. Yeah, this is actually one of my favorite parts. We've been doing these spotlighting interviews and I like love just hearing from our alumni in terms of like what from the athletic or the student athlete experience just is like really, you know, hit home and, and brought been just something you've taken away and really helped you in kind of this real life out, you know, civilian life um, after sport experience. So I'm curious, I, I may already have heard you, you've, you've shared kind of, um, you know, Rob shared some of them, but just teamwork with Shana, managing what's in your control, the figuring it out mentality, being a hustler. Um, but what are maybe some, some other stories that you can bring to life for, for current student athletes of like times when you were an athlete and lessons you learned that now, you know, in your kind of real life, every day, um, working on the cookbook or, or at the vineyard or in motherhood life, like what are some of these lessons that have really rung through for you and, and how have they showed up? Oh God, there are so many. It's, it's really, it's really tough to choose one. Um, in motherhood, I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure you could, uh, agree with this is just really being in the moment, which is so hard when you have like when the days seem like so, so long, you're like, how am I going to entertain this two year old or this six month old for the next four hours? Like, oh my God, can we just get to a nap time? <laughs> um, <laughs> it's that, that part of like, man, this, this span of time seems so long, but you could be present in the moment. And so, and when, what I learned from swimming kind of going back to that, um, that earlier part of the conversation of swimming can be so grueling and so in your own head and the practices are long. And if you really are present in what you're doing, it actually helps you get through that, that time period. Um, and with, with kids, they grow up so fast. Like it's so, I mean, um, everyone who has kids knows this and it's something that you really, uh, you understand it a little bit until you have your own. And then you're like, now I really get it. I really get how, you know, the days are long, but the years are short. <laughs> um, and I only have it. My oldest is only two and a half. Um, but, uh, yeah, just being present and really trying to take it in, uh, it is something that I've tried to apply to motherhood. And then, um, the other part of, the, the wine industry and being ready for the unexpected is the ability to pivot. Um, that that's really, really important. Um, so when the fires happened last year, uh, we weren't going to make a red Pinot Noir or, or, or Merlot or a Cabernet Sauvignon for 2020. We just, that wasn't going to happen. Unfortunately, um, we had to accept that. And instead we did a ton of rosé, um, which has in previous years has always sold, sold out. We've won awards for our rosé. So, um, we made a lot of rosé in 2020. So with, with the devastation of losing all of our red wine, we made 
much more rosé than we ever have before, um, which is selling quite well. Um, and so you have to just, you know, accept your losses as they come and then pivot and then see how you could get, be successful. Um, and Caitlin, were you on the trip when we had like a bus breakdown on the way to the airport? Um, I think in like Barcelona, <laughs> like, they, Oh yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like there, there are things that just happen in sport where you like something happens and, and you're like, all right, we, we have to go, we have to get to the meet or we have to get to the airport and you just kind of figure it out as, as you go and you have to, you, you know, pivot and maybe the, what you envisioned your, the next week of your life being your, it's going to be a little different and you have to be flexible and, and willing to, to change. And so there, there are just so many times in, in my career where, where things didn't go quite my, my way. And, um, your attitude really is important when things don't go your way. Um, you could sit and feel sorry for yourself or you could see a path forward. Um, so you could learn from your experience and see a path forward. Hey, speaking of learning, I just I just want to pick up on something. Uh, Caitlin, you're going to probably say something, too. But you mentioned, Natalie, early uh, your experience of coming to Cal, which sounds like you may have come in there with a little bit of a fixed mindset, you know, a lot of extra confidence. And then Terry kind of broke it down and maybe put you into more of a growth mindset, which really allowed you to, um, A, do well as a swimmer, you know, get to your, your maximum potential, but also to, you know, learn as a winemaker and figure it out as you go and like not be intimidated by the learning, you know, that, that you're going through at the moment. Is, is there anything to that or is, am I just reaching? Um, there is, uh, I, Terry didn't break me down. I was just broken when I got to Cal. <laughs> I, I, I showed up kind of broken and then, uh, she nursed that little broken bird into what I am today. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, yeah. What, what, what was the question? Sorry. I got like, well, I was, th- so we, you know, there's a, uh, Caitlin's down at Stanford, so she's going to know about this. Uh, right. But there's a there's a professor at Stanford named Carol Dweck who wrote a book called Mindset. And it's it's talked about a lot in the context of, um, you know, confidence and how do you how do you sort of achieve your maximum potential? And a lot of it has to do with, you know, just being open to learning and like, you know, and the idea that uh, you can always grow and um, the growth mindset. Yes. Yeah. Yes. One hundred percent. And I, I, I've told kids this all the time. Like when, whenever you, uh, whenever we have given, um, we, the collective, we, Caitlin and I, and other professional athletes, whenever we've given motivational talks, a lot of times they're like, what's the number one thing you've learned in your career. And for me, it has been that every obstacle is an opportunity, um, to learn if you have that growth mindset, um, to, to use your term- terminology, um, so that injury, how, how do I grow from that injury? Well, I improve my, uh, my technique and I learn more about my body and I apply that so that I don't break down. Um, I make sure that I am moving functionally as much as possible. Uh, so, so there are things that you could learn from injury, even illness, just things that don't go your way. And if you have the right attitude about them, you could learn and get better. 
a lot of times, a lot of athletes and a lot of just people, you, something happens and you dwell and you feel sorry for yourself and you don't have that growth mindset. And then, so nothing comes of it. And, you know, it's not like I didn't dwell at times on my injuries and feel sorry for myself. I certainly did. Um, I am human. (laughs) Um, but, but if you look, if you step back and look, okay, honestly, how can I learn from this? How can I make myself better? How can I get myself out of this hole, um, this, you know, metaphorical hole, um, then, then yeah, you figure out, you figure a way out of it. And then in the long term, you are better because of it. And then now, you know, 20 years later, I can look at that labral injury and missing the Olympic team in 2000 as the single best thing that happened in my career. Like, and at the time it was devastating, like it was devastating. But if I made that Olympic team in 2000, I would have been happy just calling myself an Olympian. I would have showed up to Cal being, you know, a overconfident, stubborn swimmer who probably wouldn't have accepted Terry's teachings <laughs> and probably, I don't even think I would have made it all four years to be honest at, at Cal. Um, and then because I was so broken down when I got there, I was open to any experience with Terry and I was going to try something new and just see what happened and, and learn from it. And then, you know, I got 12 medals out, uh, out after that devastating, uh, injury and missing the Olympic team. Um, so yeah, you have to have that, that mindset of, okay, I'm torn down, but how am I going to learn from this and how am I going to make myself better? Kaylin, did you have another following question you wanted to ask her? I was going to go down memory lane a little bit, but I think that was um, that was a beautiful, I think, segment. And and I'd say like the one thing that I like I, I mentioned at the beginning, you know, I've learned a lot from Natalie. And I actually think like I got like the huge privilege, I think, of actually like seeing Natalie on a daily basis and like kind of like go through these like micro fails on a daily basis, whether it be like practices not going the right way or like we would go to these swim meets all over the all over the world, really. And like some of the races were great and some of them weren't. And it's like so easily like looking at someone like Natalie to think like she won 12 medals, everything's gone perfectly. But like in reality, um, I've gotten to see Natalie, like, you know, kind of stumble a lot and then like figure out how to like fight and pick herself up and, and then, and then continue to do that. Like whether it's, um, you know, getting a book published or, or figuring out a way to, to navigate, you know, with tough th- fires in a winery. Like, you know, I think there's just like that repeated kind of fight and resiliency and, and like willingness to just go all in. And, um, I, it's been, um, it's just been so fun to watch and kind of see that in, in kind of real life as, as well as athletics. Oh, you're so right. Yeah. I mean, this, this is the myth of overnight success that you're talking about and, you know, is there's a million examples we could say, you know, Michael Jordan got cut from his high school basketball team, blah, 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 blah. All, you know, athletes who've uh, spent a lot of time, you know, on the field or ex- excelling to the highest levels know that that's a myth. You know, that it's, you know, the, the pathway is c- continuous daily improvement, setbacks, tr- you know, difficulty, uh, regardless of, you know, if, if you get to some place as high as Natalie got, you know, uh, or, or, or anywhere along the way, but okay. So Natalie, I got our last question for you here. Um, we, we t- touched on this 
earlier, but as, as you know, you know, 98% or so of the student athletes at Cal go pro in something other than their sport when they graduate from Cal. And then like the other 2% ultimately do so after a pro career. And we've heard uh, from this group poignantly that the transition of self-identity uh, from athlete to civilian to sort of like the post, the post sports you, you know, can be really, really hard. Uh, they've just, people have described feeling untethered, uh, deeply uncertain about who they'll become, you know, and how life will unfold, what, what the first steps are to take and so forth. And I know you went through this a little later in life and wasn't quite as, you know, immediate for you, but we're just wondering if you had any general advice, you know, as your mature self now, you've got a couple of kids, you're on the other side of this, you know, what would you, what would you recommend? What would you say to your 22 year old self? Uh, what guidance would you give? Be prepared. It's going to end at some point. Um, and whether people like to hear that or not, um, if you do go on to the pros, whatever that means in your sport, um, it will still end at some point. And then you have this, this life. And, um, so to be, to imagine what that's going to be like and really, imagine how you want that life to look and just wrap your mind around it. Uh, a lot of times the reason that like I was talking about that post-Olympic depression that people go through that initially is when you are training for something, um, whether it's football or something, you're, you are just so highly, highly focused and in that mode of being successful in that one tiny realm. And you're not even willing to consider that, Either you're not going to be, you're not going to make that Olympic team or you're not going to make, um, that, that the NFL or the NBA or whatever, you don't consider the alternative because you don't want to even that to enter into your mind. Um, what I'm saying is, you know, whether you make that Olympic team or that NBA or NFL team or whatever, it still is going to end at some point. So you have to visualize it and kind of plan that, um, you know, you're going to have to have a life out of this. And, um, so just start to identify what passions you have, what skills you have, um, and figure out what your, your life may look like. Um, but then also be flexible. I never thought I was going to be, um, a vintner and own a winery, but here I am. And, but it's all, all these lessons I learned from, uh, being a student athlete and being a professional athlete that have allowed me to be successful in this, in this business. You've got, you've got this great line in our video that we made that, that tried to sort of capture the essence of, of Cal athletics and our, and our letter winners. You said something to the effect of like, you know, it's really about the long game. And uh, so like what you just said really, really captured that. So thank you. Thank, thank you for that. That was great. Thank you. <laughs> Natalie, how can our listeners follow and reach you? Um, the easiest is Instagram. I'm on uh, at Natalie Coughlin and I also run uh, Gadarian Wines. So at Gadarian Wines, G-A-D-E-R-I-A-N Wines. Um, and then NatalieCoughlin.com. Excellent. Well, I want to thank you for joining this podcast today. I also want to share personally that sensibility you shared to really focus in on hard work 
not let yourself zone out. Um, I've, I've explained it on the podcast before. I broke my neck four years ago, um, competing in the collegiate rugby national championship, lost my ability to move. And over the last four years, I've been dedicating myself to be able to walk again. And it's a struggle. It's difficult. And I read and heard you talking about that stuff and it started implementing it into my workouts. And it's just made like a profound difference, like better results, more enjoyable um, so I want to thank you for that, but I want to thank you for all the experiences and insights you shared with us today. Uh, I've, our student athlete listeners and our young alumni will be able to reference this for years to come and get so much value out of it. So Natalie, thank you so much for being here today. Go bears. Oh, go, bears. go bears. And oh, that was wonderful. Thank you. What an exciting and insightful interview from Natalie Coughlin Hall. Some of the key takeaways that stood out to me were how she took the sensibilities of earned confidence and treating setbacks as an opportunity to go into new, challenging endeavors like publishing a cookbook and starting a winery. And I'll come back to it one more time to share how valuable I find Natalie's advice to focus in when we're uncomfortable. Don't daydream. Don't try to be somewhere else. Be here, in this moment, and make it count. That philosophy has helped me in my workouts, in my work, almost everything. I hope it helps you too. You can find the podcast, show notes, and additional content and resources on the Spotlighting Episodes page at bigcsociety.org forward slash spotlighting. If you'd like to support the work we do here on the podcast, please subscribe, comment, and share the show or your favorite episodes with friends or on social media. And you can also support us by making a gift at bigcsociety.org forward slash donate. The Big C Society is a very efficient, mostly volunteer organization and a registered 501c3 charity. Each donation of $500 supports one episode, although donations of any size are welcome. Lastly, if you played varsity sports at Cal and you haven't connected with us on LinkedIn, join us. Send a connection request. Our LinkedIn network is comprised of thousands of Cal varsity athletes and alumni who are among the most productive citizens of the world, just like Natalie. I'll see you in a few weeks on our next amazing episode. Thank you for listening and go Bears!